So what's really going down in the clinical trials for all the COVID-19 vaccines? I think we're going to break records with vaccines. America's top medical expert, Anthony Fauci, has said a vaccine could be ready within 12 to 18 months, while health officials elsewhere say it could take even longer. It's important for everyone to understand that we're in a really unique situation here that no scientist, doctor, expert or regulator has experienced in their lifetime. A drug's path to approval usually takes 10 to 15 years from the lab to the pharmacy shelves. And what we're seeing right now is 12 to 18 months of human testing that would usually take 5 to 10 years. Now, the explanation for this is a combination of free money, priorities within companies, cooperation with regulators, and probably a lot of all-nighters. But it's still a really, really, really short time frame. While some vaccines have already been issued emergency use authorizations, let's not forget that these are massive exceptions given the high-stakes situation we're in, a pandemic that has lasted a year and is only getting worse. The most common questions around these trials are, how can they get them done so fast when it supposedly has taken decades in the past? How can we interpret the results right now? And what evidence are we still waiting for? Let's try and understand this a little better. I'm Sarani Fernando, and this is episode two of The COVAX Files. Clinical trials, red tape, and the regulators. So as you probably keep hearing, vaccines can take a decade or so to study before they are approved. And that involves lab testing and animal testing, followed by three stages in human clinical trials, phase one, two, and three. Now, vaccines are a little bit of a different beast to study versus normal drugs because they aren't treating anything and are trying to prove that they're preventing an infection, where the infection rate can be a little bit unpredictable, especially when the patients are not being intentionally exposed to the virus, which would be unethical, considering this virus can be lethal. But all of these challenges mean that vaccines need to be studied in a huge number of patients over a long period of time. But how have we managed to squish such complex research into an unheard of tight timeline? Prior to COVID, it was a five to seven year process between phase one, two and three clinical trials and then getting the manufacturing up and running. That's Dr. Deborah Fuller. She's a professor at the University of Washington and a veteran microbiologist who has worked on genetic vaccines for around 30 years. So what was different about COVID-19 is that a pandemic puts everything else on hold, puts anything that is related to COVID-19 at the forefront. Generally, you'd have to get in line with the FDA. So we will be referring to the FDA a lot in this episode. And while the FDA is a regulatory body that only approves drugs for the US, a lot of other global authorities, for example, the EMA in Europe, do view FDA approvals with a lot of weight and have similar standards. And you come up in the queue and it's your turn, but they really kind of pushed through a lot of the bureaucracy and just got uh, a lot of attention in terms of accelerating that. The other piece is that they recognize that in a pandemic situation, money is not as important, right? Clinical trials cost millions and millions of dollars that have a good chance of just all going down the drain because a lot of new drug trials fail. That's just the nature of the game. It's high risk and high reward. Companies usually wait until they have one set of answers before investing in the next stage of trials. But with billions of dollars from various government money pots given to industry leaders, 
a lot of that risk burden just disappeared and companies could justify getting ahead of themselves. So generally what a company or a group who's developing a vaccine would do is that they'll start with their phase one trial and that phase one trial is going to tell you if the vaccine's safe. That's the main thing. They'll also get an initial read on whether it's going to induce immune responses that you hope it to. And then they'll wait until they get the data before they make the investment into phase two and and then, and then so on into phase three and so on into manufacturing. Well, this time what they did is they just get the initial data and they start the phase two even before the phase one is completed. And so they're taking sort of, a, in a way, uh, an investment risk. They're not taking risks in terms of the safety because they make sure it passes the safety hurdles required to go into phase two, but they're not waiting for the completion of the trial to get all the data. They're saying, okay, we've got the minimum data we need to support going into phase two. Let's go ahead and start phase two. And if something later on in phase one had come up that says, hey, you know, you have to put the brakes on this, they would have lost some money and had to stop the phase two. But it was just one thing for all of these vaccines. They were keeping an eye on that and, uh, you know, checking all their safety marks, checking all their efficacy and immunogenicity boxes and being able to to accelerate that much quickly by overlapping those phases instead of having them go sequential one right after another. And then along those lines, companies start investing already in the manufacturing, even as they started the phase two trials. That's a huge, huge financial risk, but there were no safety steps skipped. If, in, in fact, I would say there was more attention and diligence in ensuring that all of the safety um, uh, check marks were checked off. So that does answer a lot of questions in terms of companies being able to accelerate. But I really wanted to understand how these trials compare to the trials conducted for already approved vaccines. I remember covering the meningococcal vaccines and the pneumococcal vaccines around 10 years ago. And there were just so many studies to keep track of. And they were conducted for multiple years in order to get the key results needed for things like approvals or label expansions into different populations and age groups. And it just seems like the current vaccines need a lot less data for their approvals. Here's Dr. Carilla at the NIH, who I spoke to in episode one. So typically what you see, again, one of the reasons vaccine development is so long traditionally is we usually start out with your first population is, is young, healthy people, usually 18 to 40, 18 to 50 or so. And then once you know that that works, then you would go into an older population, you know, the 50 to 65 and or 50 to 70, and then an over the 70 population. And then once you felt confident that this was relatively safe and was effective in adults, then you would begin a de-escalation process and age de-escalation in children. You'd go into teenagers, you'd go into preteens, you'd go into the younger population group. With the caveat that sometimes with children, because they're more naive to infect, they haven't been exposed to as much, they may need higher doses of vaccine. Sometimes because of their immune system, they may be more reactogenic. So you may have to go to a lower dose for vaccine. So you do this with a lot of caution and you do it after you have accumulated a lot of data in in adults, one that you know the vaccine works. So you feel pretty confident that it, if, if we run into problems with kids, it's not because the vaccine didn't work. The other thing which you hope by that time is to have, which we still don't have in the case of of COVID, is we don't have a correlate of protection, some immunogenicity marker. Typically, it's an antibody titer. One would expect that it would be neutralizing titer. 
So just to clarify, the neutralizing titer is simply a specific level of antibody production that is likely to fight the infection. You know, that measurement would correlate with a measure of protection. You need to be over a certain level. And so that provides a better clue in younger and older at-risk populations that I don't have to wait for them to get sick. I can look to see if I have a very good correlate of protection, then all I need to do is vaccinate them and look to see if they respond with a level of neutralizing titer, if that is in fact your correlate of protection, that we associate with protection from disease. So it's pretty clear that all the ongoing COVID-19 vaccine trials are not doing such focused testing like Dr. Carilla described. But I guess it's reasonable to understand that the urgency calls for a bit of a different approach. So that is one single massive trial that will answer a lot of basic questions like whether it's safe and that it works. And hopefully companies do still intend to do those additional follow-up studies to understand how their vaccines work in different populations. So as you can probably imagine, there is so much that goes into the design and execution of clinical trials, and precision is key. There's a lot of room for error. While there is a general formula to designing a clinical trial, no trial is equal and there are a lot of moving parts. The way a trial is designed often comes down to statistics and a good biostatistician that can map it all out. So I contacted one of my old sources, Dr. Scott Evans, at the Biostatistics Center at George Washington University, who's also previously been on the FDA Advisory Committee. Back in the day, he used to expose so many red flags of clinical trials that would often end up being real issues for the end results. I think there's a lot of pressures right now for faster answers, but you have to balance that with making sure that the results of the trial are robust. Now, in order to get those robust results that the drug works, you have to consider so many factors. Some of these include choosing the right population, the number of patients, the right control group for comparisons like a placebo or something else, eliminating biases while still making some assumptions. One of the most important parts is picking the right endpoint, which is the benchmark for the drug to succeed in the trial, which we'll discuss in a little bit more detail. So every trial has a protocol, which is sort of like a master instruction manual that everyone involved in the trial has to follow. Normally, these are never made public by companies. But given the unique circumstances, all of the leaders have released their protocols in order to eliminate some of the scrutiny around their vaccine developments. So I asked Scott to just flip through them and see if anything stood out at first glance. Are there any major differences with these protocols to well-established vaccines? Well, there's a couple of things that are a little bit different. I think the nature of these protocols is trying to respond to an epidemic and having to deal with the episodic and evolving nature of infections. I think in a world where things were not so pressing, trials like this may be designed for uh, more severe disease and making sure you can prevent severe infections or mortality and things like that. That's actually a major stickling point that we're going to hash into a little bit later. There are also a few differences in the way the results are being released. So, for example, during the course of these studies, many of these studies are having interim analyses that are evaluating the efficacy of the vaccine and safety of the vaccine before the trial is completed. Mm -hmm. And that's not typically done in clinical trials. 
Scott explained that the positive results in November by both Pfizer and Moderna, which were around 95%, would never be released to the public under normal circumstances and wouldn't even be known by the companies. They'd usually wait until the trial was over to release the results. Now, on the one hand, you understand why some of that is happening. There's an urgency for a vaccine. And if we have something effective, we want it out there and as quickly as we can get it. But one challenging factor is that the knowledge of those results can cause people who are involved with the trial, whether that's consciously or unconsciously, to change their actions and other things may change and you you don't want to disrupt the trial. He explained that if you know you have the vaccine and that it works, you might act a bit more carefree than you normally would. Or alternatively, if you figured out that you had the placebo, you might want to switch to getting the vaccine as soon as possible for your own safety that may have implications on evaluating long-term protection of the vaccines. So if you've been following the trials, you'll have noticed that these trials are enrolling tens of thousands of patients, Pfizer over 40,000 and Moderna around 30,000. And they've got a predestined number of COVID cases that they need to hit before they can unblind the trial and look at who got infected while on the vaccine and who got infected on placebo. So I was curious to understand how those numbers got drummed up. Well, there is some complex formulas behind the scenes, but it's mainly a function of several different factors. Primarily what is done is they set up a scientific hypothesis. Okay, so that gets really complicated, but to sort of sum it up, they're making some assumptions based on how good they think that their vaccine is, and they need to make sure that it has a really low chance of showing a false positive result while giving it a high chance of demonstrating that it works to the assumed levels. Now, given all the moving paths with testing a vaccine in a pandemic like this, it means that the number of patients needed for a clinical trial needs to be quite astronomical, which is why you're seeing 30,000, 40,000 patients being enrolled into these trials. Usually, phase three trials would be in the low thousands. You know, if you give the vaccine to a thousand patients, only a uh, fraction of those patients are actually going to develop it anyway, even under a placebo vaccine. You're giving the vaccine to a lot of patients that are not necessarily going to get COVID-19. So in order to show that I'm preventing infections from happening, I have to vaccinate a lot of patients because only a percentage of them are going to get infected, even under a placebo. So the actual infection rate that is happening in the population in which the trial is taking place plays into this. So I asked Dr. Carilla at the NIH what he thought of the decision to unblind for efficacy after a specific number of confirmed COVID cases. For example, in Pfizer's trial, it was 170, and for Moderna's, it was 95. To me, unblinding at that point seemed very low, like to <laughs> to make a huge assumption on like, whoa, it's efficacious. And, well, yeah. I, I think, yeah, it, it does it does appear that way. I think what people were looking at is, what is the minimum number that we can derive, given that the vaccine works at the level we think it's going to work? Will we have the statistical support that we're not seeing something that is just arbitrary? You still have the limitation of that few number of cases. And you have the other added feature here is, I think, which needs to be kept in mind, is that a vaccine is not something like an intervention that works 
at a specific period of time. It has to work over a specific period of time. And so the one thing I'm a little bit cautious of is, you know, we're looking at these numbers of 95%, which is absolutely great. I mean, totally unexpected. But on the other hand, I don't know that we've ever really looked this early in a vaccine trial. Maybe a lot of vaccines look this good if you (laughs) look this early. And there's obviously at some point there has to be a drop off. So it's pretty clear that these early results are leaving a lot to the imagination with these experts. And we should all be reading these positive results with a lot of caution and be prepared for the level of protection to change given we're this early in the game with a lot of unknowns. This past October, an advisory committee to the FDA met for a whole day to discuss and debate what the vaccines should show if they're approved. It was long and detailed, and I did tune in to a bit of it. Dr. Carilla was actually on it for the whole time. Not only was I online for the entire time, but they actually had us call in an hour earlier. Oh. One of the concerns by the committee was that the trials were designed to succeed with low benchmarks and that they were only generating data on protection against mild disease and not infection. Now, the whole point of this vaccine, why all the money is being poured into it and why a lot of healthy people will be taking that risk, isn't to prevent those mild fevers and coughs. It's so we can curb that rising death rate and the number of people being hospitalized. There has been debate about whether we should be more focused on severe disease and more severe outcomes rather than just a mild infection. And it's a legitimate question. The downside of going after that perhaps more important question is that more time and more resources are going to be needed in order to do that. Trials could be designed to evaluate mortality and hospitalizations and ICU stays and so forth. However, they would require considerably more patients to study those outcomes, which would mean that results would come later rather than sooner. The issue here is that you just see much less severe disease. So if we're already talking about an attack frequency of less than 1% over a six-month period, severe disease would be even much lower than that, or else Mm. you have to go to people who are at much higher risk. Now, the difficulty here from a vaccine development standpoint is if I tested it in people who are likely to have the most severe disease, I would be giving it to the elderly. But if I give the vaccine and it doesn't work, I don't know whether the vaccine did not work because the vaccine itself was no good or if that population just doesn't respond well to that vaccine. For example, we know this in the case of flu. The elderly don't respond as well to flu vaccines as younger people. So in order to evaluate the vaccine, you want to test it in a population that you're very confident would react to the vaccine in a very positive manner. Because if it doesn't work in relatively healthy people, then there's no way you would expect it to work in a sicker population. Mm -hmm. We need to very importantly determine that the vaccine itself is something that works and then understand which populations it actually works in after that. So this really brings us back to what Dr. Carilla was saying earlier in the episode about how vaccine development programs are designed to include many trials in many different populations to get a real array of data to make conclusions. With the current trials, we just don't have that luxury. And instead, these companies are going for one-shot wonder trials that can tell us some basic things like, does it work? 
even within that particular framework, they can still collect data on how many people are developing severe symptoms. I don't think they're not collecting it. I think when we talk about efficacy, it's based on that mild disease, but they're still going to be looking to see if their vaccines are protecting against severe disease as well. Let's ask the statistician. The hope is that if you at least are preventing mild infections, that perhaps you're also preventing more severe disease as well and and potentially preventing the spread of that disease. And those are reasonable hypotheses, but as yet are, are unproven. The numbers of patients and the power to assess whether the, the vaccine is preventing severe infection or even preventing mortality will be less than ideal under current sample size of many of these studies. In my experience following drug approvals over the last 10 years, regulators are tough. They can reject a drug on some minor detail that can at times seem fickle. There has always been a strong degree of prudence when approving new drugs. So typically, the two landmark approvals that drug developers go for are the US and EU approvals. They're awarded by the US FDA and the EU EMA. Nonetheless, the FDA is sort of seen as the godfather of all regulators. They are tough and have the most rigorous approval standards, at least over the last few decades. But in recent years, they have been loosening up a little. What I'm seeing now is really unprecedented. And I'm pretty sure that regulators anywhere in the world would not be reviewing data at this stage if it weren't for a raging pandemic and a whole heap of pressure. Well, these vaccines have been politicized more so than anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. That was Dr. Greg Gray again from the Duke Institute, who was on the FDA advisory committee 10 years ago. I was chatting to him about how I got some feeling that the FDA was sort of loosening up a little bit and maybe reducing their standards for approvals. You know, I think the people on these committees are going to adhere to very rigorous science. The, The FDA political appointees maybe urging, you know, some of the staff to get things through the wickets, but the committees that have oversight, the safety committees for the vaccine trials, they're realizing that they're really under pressure to be very conservative. And I have confidence that we'll have good and safe vaccines with normal standards when, when these things are approved. I, I don't think anybody's going to cut any major corners. You know, when I first started investigating clinical trials and covering them, it was when the FDA was super strict. For a lot of things, they required more than one phase three trial and for it to show identical positive effect in both of them. And if one was negative, then they have to, you have to go do it again. But I remember there being loads of different vaccine trials that would be different lengths, some six months, some five years, all at the same time. And before they would be approved, do you see any difference here with the requirements before like a full licensure? So, you know, I was on the FDA's CBER Vaccines and Related Biologic Products Advisory Committee 2010 to 13. So I've been Mm -hmm. out of that process for seven years. So I've casually heard that they have streamlined things a bit. I think they have made some changes in, in the rigor but they've not made them for the purpose of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. They've tried to expedite things in a good way when it makes sense to do so. But I have every confidence that, you know, they're going to look at these vaccines and hold them up to very high critical standards. 
just because everybody and his brother would attack them and the U.S. and the and Moderna and Pfizer and everyone else if, if there was sort of a compromise because it is so politically charged. So I asked Scott whether there was any concern that the companies were going to regulators for approvals with the efficacy that they had right now. I don't think it's an easy question. I think we'd all agree the faster we get something, the better. But the durability of the vaccine and the long-term protective abilities of the vaccine need to be well studied. And so there's a bit of a trade-off with the quality of evidence we're going to get for durability Mm -hmm. if we submit now. And that's where the challenge comes in. I'm not sure there's a clear answer about what to do in that case, whether we should wait to get more of that information in a well-controlled setting. Mm. So that's one of the challenges. Now, it also brings up into play because this is a, a preventative vaccine. You're giving this vaccine to presumably relatively healthy people. You're not treating them for something. You're trying to prevent something from happening. Yeah. So the safety of that vaccine is very important because you're giving it to essentially healthy people mm-hmm. and because you're going to be giving it to lots and lots of people. So you want to be very diligent about evaluating the safety of the vaccine. And one of the challenges with some of the numbers that we're looking at is whether there will be enough data to assess the safety of the vaccine, particularly for quite rare events that might occur with application of that vaccine, and whether the sample sizes we have in this study will be enough to actually detect some of these rare safety concerns if they exist. So that to me is a real understated point right there. And we will be exploring more of the vaccine's individual safety profiles in the next and later episodes. The time between first efficacy results and emergency use authorizations was just a matter of three or four weeks. The UK authorization of Pfizer's vaccine came first, and it's been largely reported that they used Pfizer's own analysis, which was submitted on a rolling basis. Now, Canada came in second a week later, and they said they did an independent analysis. Now, the FDA and EU authorizations came shortly after, but no matter how you look at it, that's all being discussed as an incredibly short timeline to get all the analysis done. It's expected that regulatory employees just worked around the clock, but it's still debatable on how deep they could really go. By historical standards, just on a fast track review, would typically be five months, whereas the standard review is probably more upwards of about 10 months. They may do their own analyses to try to replicate analyses that were performed by the study sponsor, or they may reanalyze the data using either more robust methods or something that they're more comfortable with. Scott went on to explain that they really splice the data every which way to see if there is consistency in the result, which will also tell them whether there are any differing results across various age groups, gender, or race. And those will be important things to know when approving a vaccine. It is a very fast timeline and will be challenging for them to keep up on such a timeline. I think in the case of these mRNA vaccines, which are brand new technologies, it probably would behoove the FDA to put some effort into inspections just so that they have a good understanding of how these things are being done. Could it be possible that they'll work towards a faster timeline for emergency use authorization, but then with the wider approval, they'll be much more stringent and maybe require a higher benchmark for that kind of approval? Yeah, that could certainly be the case. 
almost anything could be possible at this point. There are pressures from multiple angles. Clearly, we'd like to have a vaccine as quickly as we can get it, but at the same time, we want to make sure it's safe and it's durable. So I guess while emergency approvals have largely been given, the question now is, how will regulators across the globe approach broad approvals expected later in 2021? Will they feel the pressure to just approve it as the pandemic continues in its devastation around the globe? Or will they be more prudent and wait for more data to gain more confidence in a mass vaccine rollout? I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So thanks for joining me on this second and pretty heavy episode of The COVAX Files. I promise this will all be worth it in the end. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Scott Evans, Dr. Deborah Fuller, Dr. Michael Carilla, and Dr. Greg Grave for participating in this episode. Now that we have a little bit of an understanding of how these clinical trials are set up, their strengths and relevant weaknesses, we're going to take a look at Pfizer and Moderna's mRNA vaccines. We'll zoom in on their trial progress, their recent results, and what that all really means. So join me next time on the COVAX Files. Music.